I have to say, throughout my uh, life, lots of people have called me a maverick. I've never felt a maverick. I've, I've always felt a, a, a most a pioneer. I like creating a new pathway, a new hope, a new opportunity. This is a podcast about one of the most extraordinary humans I've ever met. When Peter Scott Morgan was diagnosed with motor neurone disease, or MND for short, he decided to approach his illness in his own unique way. 18 months ago, I was diagnosed with a terminal disease. I think it's negotiable. I intend to throw technology at it, not just to survive, I intend to thrive. Affecting about one in 400, MND is an incurable disease, which destroys the nerves that control voluntary muscles. That's anything you move intentionally, like your limbs or facial expressions. Most know it as the disease the scientist Stephen Hawking had. Peter's a scientist too, with a doctorate in robotics. So as Peter's body shuts down, he intends to replace it with technology. Soon I won't be able to walk, talk, eat or breathe. I intend to throw technology at this. I don't see myself in some sort of a wheelchair. I see myself in an exoskeleton, maybe with robotic arms, uh, with voice, vision upgrades, and ultimately with my brain interfacing directly into a computer. This is serious cyborg territory, and I intend to be a human guinea pig to see just how far we can turn science fiction into fact. Across the three parts of this podcast, I'll reveal Peter's pioneering transformation into a full cyborg. Part human, part machine. He calls his cyborg Peter 2.0. Most of the source material for this podcast is from the rushes of a documentary directed by a filmmaker called Matt Pelly, who filmed with Peter throughout 2018. Uh, so life before MND, let's take a, a bit of a backwards step. So you're, is it, I mean, you're 60 this year. Matt recorded each and every twist and turn in the development of Peter 2.0. And in a massive series of interviews, Matt asked probing questions. Do you think it might ever, it, it might ever get to the stage when you think, I've had enough? You know, that, that, you know, perhaps things don't go according to plan or things don't quite work or that you might think, actually, I don't want this anymore. Turn off the machines. If I'm really truthful, I don't know. But I have certainly never had any inkling of it. And I'm not quite sure if I'm able to create the environment that allows me to thrive why would it be any different than I normally am? I'll be a different physical person, but my brain, if it can still be active, if, if it can still be free, if I can still create, if I can still enjoy life, if I can still change the world, why would I want to leave it early? Matt never finished his documentary because he died in a tragic accident in late 2018. He left behind a great deal of footage of the first stage of Peter's transformation. 
My name is Chris Derlacker. I'm a documentary maker too. As well as completing Matt's doc, I'm doing this podcast in which I'll sift through Matt's rushes to chart the progression of Peter's MND and dig deep into the issues thrown up by his technological transformation. There's fascinating areas right on the frontiers of consciousness of what it means to be human. As I replumb myself, of course I'm still human, I've just got some engineering bits. If I do the same and replumb my brain, am I still exactly the same? Or am I changing into some sort of hybrid? What does being a cyborg really mean? And so I think that there's everything from pure, literally nuts and bolts technology, right the way to deeply philosophical issues, and we'll be pushing the boundaries on all of them. And that's the exciting thing that science does. The podcast will follow Peter as he researches the technology that might help him, and as he designs his own cyborg. Then be with him as he attempts his dramatic transformation. And this first episode of the podcast will reveal the specifics of how MND is affecting Peter and why he decides to transform himself into the world's first cyborg. To begin at the beginning means going back to long before Peter got sick, to his childhood. My whole science education when I was young was Doctor Who and Star Trek. Without those... I would not have become a scientist. I would not have a PhD. I only ever got a PhD because since a kid, I'd ask, what does Doctor Who have? He's not a medical doctor. That, he, they changed my life, those two programs. One of the most important things I learned was that any problem in the universe could be solved if you were bright enough, brave enough, and if you had access to really, really cool technology, of course, now I'm a scientist, I believe exactly the same thing. So really, I look back and Peter of seven, eight, nine, I, I've got a slightly more sophisticated facade. I'm exactly the same kid. I'm driving down to Torquay in South Devon, what's whimsically known as the English Riviera. This is where Peter Scott Morgan lives with his husband Francis. I'm about to meet them both for the first time. So how are you? Yeah? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Stressed, but um, Stressed. No, we're getting there actually. We're doing quite well, really, all things considered. Um, as ever, I'm greeted at the door by Francis, sporting a big, welcoming smile. Typical of the many small kindnesses that he performs with modest grace. I remember the first time I came here. Francis showed me through to his husband, Peter. Although in his early 60s, Peter has luscious blonde hair and pearly white teeth. He was also in a wheelchair, his head supported by a neck brace, his arms lying helpless, 
and he couldn't lift a hand to shake mine. I was meeting Peter and Francis with my game face on. Half of me was connecting with them on a human level and half of me was assessing the situation as the subject matter for the documentary. Luckily, Peter was doing exactly the same thing and was soon talking about what the doc might say. We're talking seriously about changing what it means to be human. We're wanting uh, to have an audience rethink what it means to be them. I spent three hours with Peter, during which time he did most, in truth, nearly all the talking. Even the smallest question from me elicited a comprehensive answer that usually involved digressions within digressions, but did, many minutes later, wind back to the point. Peter's force of personality was so powerful, it was possible to forget his disability. Until Francis told me a story that reminded me how sick Peter really is. It is a constant grieving process, really. And it's hard work, I should imagine. Yeah. And the harder, work, harder you work and the tireder you it get, is tiring. the more tired it just be. I think the thing is for us is our way of coping is to try... To, we know that the only way is to be strong and, yeah, and to, try to, to try to not be emotional because once we go down that route of self-pity then we're not doing the things we ought to do to be ready right. in a place that so we need to be in October. Yeah, We've got to keep positive. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I kept saying to, to Matt. I don't want to go down that route of being tearful and cr- allowing yourself yeah, yeah, that, you. you know. I, I know exactly what Francis is trying of um, sort of not, not feeling the emotion, feeling the emotion, feeling yourself on a permanent knife edge where you have to uh, basically be saying to the crying child, then there's going to be okay. You you see, you get emotional. So that's why I have to say, there, there, it's going to be okay. (laughs) I had to remind myself that I was there to do a job. And I tried to pin Peter down on specifics. Lots of footage had already been shot, but I wanted to know what else we might focus our camera on. With remarkable candour, Peter set out his near future. He told me his illness would soon become much worse, that within months he'd be unable to move at all, not even speak. There's the... A human interest story, there's the, as you say, the deep philosophical stuff, and there's the high tech. But, my goodness, the high tech is in such a different league than anything. Not that I imagined, as I always imagined it as an endpoint, but just practically, even I did not think it was likely to get it done in time. So that's what really transforms everything. So he'd set a deadline for the key technological components of Peter 2.0, his future cyborg self. October the 10th, 2019. It was now early June. So that was 
just four months away. As a result, it seemed the development of Peter 2.0 was going to be of more than philosophical interest. It was going to be a gripping, edge-of-your-seat, willy-won't-he-make-it thriller in which one man raced against time to build a machine that had never been built before. The reality is we're counting in so close to the wire mm-hmm. that if relatively close to the event, and let's say August, fine, we're not ready yet. Uh, this is true jeopardy. Uh, you don't have to create it in the dark bedroom. You couldn't make it up. I'll get back to that jeopardy towards the end of this episode of the podcast. It will become even more intense in later episodes. And I'll be with Peter on October the 10th at the critical moment of truth. But first, I want to go back to before I met Peter. I explained earlier how I joined the project of recording the transformation into Peter 2.0 when the documentary maker who had been on the project, Matt Pelly, died. I've gone through hundreds of hours of footage that Matt shot with Peter to put together the story of the origin of Peter 2.0, starting with Peter talking about the onset of his illness. Cold November day 2016, I had a lovely long hot soak in the bath, did what I have done all my life, which is, as I get out of the bath, you shake your foot to get the water off. And it wouldn't happen. It was very, very strange, and I thought I just pulled a a muscle. It wasn't a pulled muscle, but the first symptom of something much more serious. However, it was only after about a year of tests, in late 2017, that he was diagnosed with motor neurone disease, or MND. It's also known as ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. This incurable disease will leave his brain fully functioning, but locked into a useless body that is unable to move so much as a fingertip, or even talk. Being locked in is not ideal. It's not what I planned or wanted. It is what it is. In another interview... Peter's husband, Francis, recalls his first reaction to the diagnosis. The two have been together for 40 years. Francis seems more ready to be open about the difficulties ahead. To start with, uh, initially, it is like a mourning. I mean, it is a shock. It is, how do we deal with this? And, you know, don't get me wrong, I've shed a tear. I've I've felt, how on earth am I going to, you feel a alone, although you're not, because you've got a lot of support from a lot of lovely people. You feel very afraid. Um, how do you deal with it? It's, it's traumatic. The relationship between Peter and Francis, the tenderness between them, will be one of the most consistently nourishing parts of this story. We'll need it, because it's a tale with more ups and downs than a Hollywood movie. A few weeks ago, I got a cold, 
and uh, in the middle of the night, uh, with my NIV mask on, I got a bit of phlegm uh, somewhere uh, around my throat. My throat shut and I could not breathe. It was pretty awful. I have to say it was pretty scary because that, that sound when somebody can't breathe of... <gasps> it was saliva, so drinking some water relieved it, which is brilliant. It was pretty awful. I later discover someone is trying to turn Peter's life story into a movie. They'll have to work hard to make it as fascinating as the real thing. No type of MND is good, but sometimes it's worse than other times. The comedian Ronnie Corbett was diagnosed with MND a few months before Peter. Corbett is already dead. So what kind does Peter have? The sort of motor neuron disease that I have, ALS, Lou Gehrig's, is always referred to as a terminal disease. And in fact, the standard statistics that everyone uses, which are probably quite correct, are 30% chance I'll be dead in a year, which is a couple of months, by the way. 50% um, chance I'll be dead in two years. Um, and 90% chance I'll be dead in five years. And what happened with me was that it started off and worked up and it got up to about my knees and I was really struggling to walk by that stage. That's about six months in. Actually, um, about three months ago, um, I could feel that I was losing my grip in my hand. That uh, uh, progressed. I now can't lift my arms much higher than they are here. I watch Peter raise his arm to chest height, an ability he'd lost by the time I met him. My grip's completely gone. Then two months ago, for the first time, I noticed I couldn't swallow quite as well. I couldn't speak quite as well. I, every 15 seconds or so, I would just slightly slur a word. So it's, it, it, there, there's a part of you that's just fascinated to see which one's going to completely give up first. As part of his research, Peter meets MND specialist Tracy Thomas. The camera is there to catch the encounter. She tells him how other MND sufferers have reacted to their diagnosis. It is hugely different for different people. So some people, as you say, will be absolutely traumatised. And I have patients who have not wanted me to visit just because they can't cope with the diagnosis. What doctors are here to do, i.e. cure us and treat us, um, they're not able to do in this. So they are really in a very hard situation. And actually, I think that's often why things perhaps don't pitch out as well as they could do. The scientist Stephen Hawking lived with the disease for 55 years and thrived, becoming a world-famous astrophysicist along the way. Stephen Hawking, I, I, I met him briefly once. Quite separately, he was... He, he, he spent most of his time focusing on uh, uh, the universe, but he spent enough time on how to keep going. He accepted every possible intervention. In fact, Peter hopes technology will do more for him than it did for Stephen Hawking. For instance, Peter doesn't want the world to see his paralysed face. It will become hidden while a screen displays his expressive avatar. He will have to speak through a computer like Hawking did. But he doesn't want it to sound like he's doing that. 
I don't want to just talk in a uh, computer robotic voice or indeed someone else's voice. I want it to be my voice. He doesn't want technology to aid his locked-in body. He wants to replace it. That's why he describes Peter 2.0 as a cyborg. My whole science education when I was young was Doctor Who and Star Trek. They didn't do storylines of scientists gets MND and curls up and statistically comes to an end. Instead, it was all scientists get some huge setback and creates an artificial body. And for heaven's sake now, I mean, this is science fiction. I can actually start becoming a bit of a cyborg, putting all these bits of kid on. I mean, what's not to like? Teenage Peter loves the idea. He will still be the same person, albeit in a slightly different form. I think he refers to himself, is it Peter 2 point, whatever. Um, so yeah, there is hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And I think the journey between now and then is the difficult one, watching him deteriorate. Once he gets locked in, uh, it can't hurt him anymore. You know, a lot of people are getting news that their loved one is dead or dying. Mine's going to be in a wheelchair. Get over it. He's going to be locked in. I'm going to deal with that. We can deal with it. If Peter is more gung-ho than Francis, it's not surprising. He's a childhood sci-fi nut. He has a PhD in robotics and has always been comfortable in the role of pioneer. Yeah, if, if, you, if you're going to get a terminal disease, honestly, MND is the one to go for. There's no pain. There's no nausea. You have plenty of time to plan. Oh, and it turns out the terminal bit is negotiable. So if you gave me a range of terminal diseases, I, I would choose this one. I wish it didn't end with me being locked in, but sure as heck, I intend that when I'm locked in, it's unlike anyone who's been locked in before, and I hope a lot of other people are able to follow in the same footsteps and have that same choice. So that's really the, the, the whole motivation in some ways of, of doing everything I'm trying to do. I find it hard to imagine how someone with MND is excited by their future. But having met Peter, I know he is as excited as he says. And it soon becomes clear that Peter will do anything to make Peter 2.0 happen, to the extent of having his fully functioning stomach completely replumbed so he can take food in and get rid of waste automatically. This would be the first stage of his technological transformation. Although the stomach carries on as normal with MND, Peter's logic is clear. He's already unable to move his arms and legs enough to feed and toilet himself. His MND means that all this must be done for him by a carer, and he doesn't want that. Carers are wonderful. I love my carers. I love being pampered. I mean, nobody says this, but actually it's not all bad. But during the day, I want a sense of independence, of freedom. And then you come to the interesting topic of toileting. And the bizarre thing with MND is that although all your voluntary muscles shut down, all your gut carries on working. You're fully continent, never becoming continent. So nobody ever deals with that. They just say, 
oh well uh, you need to get to a toilet and then be toileted well it's actually that means that you've got to have carers all the time and actually I don't particularly like the idea of being toileted it seems rather rather passive I think that's a perfect opportunity to throw a bit of engineering at it so what I asked for was some complete replumbing of my gut It's July 2018. Peter and Francis arrive at their local hospital. Remember, they live in Torquay, on Britain's sunny south coast. The hospital here is typical of any hospital in any medium-sized town in Britain. But Peter, it turns out, has convinced his local NHS trust to perform the trailblazing operation to replumb his abdomen. Just this way. Is it? Go back to the lift. Go back down to the lift. Oh, right. And then up to the Nice room. Lovely. This be your suite from next week. Yeah. Or longer. <laughs> yes, you said nearly two weeks, maybe. Viewing the banter between Peter and Francis, I sense a forced cheerfulness. Perhaps hiding some nerves. As soon as he's into his hospital bed, Peter reveals why this might be the case. The nurse and the surgeon basically uh, wanted to take us to one side, really to just be sure that we understood that it really is risky and that they're um, a bit worried. The nurse uh, said she's worked with a lot of people uh, with MND and just having one procedure can push uh, things over the edge and so they are all on high alert with me. Peter's about to have three tubes inserted directly into his stomach. One just above the navel, so nutrients can be pumped into him through it. Two other are output tubes. One for liquid, the other for solid wastes. It turns out I seem to be the first person to have asked for all this to be done, and certainly the first to have it done on the NHS. And uh, uh, everyone's telling me, this is amazing what you're doing. To me, it's just common sense. As Peter is being prepared for his pioneering op, he receives a visit from anaesthetist Dr Marie Wright. The conversation that follows is amazing. Tell me why you're having this operation, why it matters to you. Because it's liberating. Okay. I mean, so I, I think I said to you then, I'm going to, I plan to spend a lot longer locked yeah. in than I do getting there. And yeah. so, uh, so again, the, the, what's the solution? Carers and incontinence pads. Yeah. yeah. That's so, quite fun. So we know where you want to get to. We know what's going to happen. And motor neuron disease is going to get worse and you're going to get to a position of being locked in and require extra support for everything. Yeah. So you're making these choices now to prepare you for that future. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, as I said to you the other day, there are risks along the way. Yeah. Shortly after her chat with Peter, Marie Wright explains what she thinks of what Peter is about to have done to himself. She's very frank. I've never met anybody quite like Peter. He's really unique. He has such a vision for his future and you can't help but be impressed by the way that he wants to take control. And I've never met anybody quite like that before. For patients with MND where the situation generally is very bleak, Peter's solution is cutting edge, 
uh, and all the technologies he wants to embrace haven't ever been done before. It may well, you know, in 10 years' time, he might look back and say, well, why didn't we offer that to everybody? And so I think this is groundbreaking, and he is yeah, a pioneer. After Marie's visit to Peter, there is a very tender moment as Francis and Peter say goodbye, half-joking, half-nervous about what's going to happen. Peter, still smiling, is wheeled towards the operating theatre and Francis goes home to wait. Sitting alone in their kitchen, Francis recalls how, 40 years ago, he first set eyes on Peter. The first time I met Peter, well, it was actually a very strange day. Um, it was raining, I remember that, it was in April, and I just heard uh, a friend of mine had been murdered, and unfortunately he was murdered by queer bashers. So I was feeling rather despondent, and then behind me came in this vision. Uh, it was, I think he was nearly 21, so still, still illegal, <laughs> nearly 21, with these tight trousers on, flowing hair, big white teeth, and suddenly all of my woes <laughs> went away. And there was this beautiful young man, and uh, for some, some reason we, we seemed to look at each other and I love at first sight. I know it sounds stupid, but uh, we just were infatuated very, very quickly. So um, it, was, it was kind of romantic and I found him at a good time, a time when I needed to. And I was just really attracted to this clever, clever boy who also happened to be pretty pretty. <laughs> Four hours later, The phone rings. Hello. Hello. Is that Scott Baldwin's partner? It is. It is. Hello, Mr. Kennedy. I'm so sorry. I, I forgot you, your first name. You did Francis. Francis. Hello, Francis. Hi. No, I'm doing fine, thank you. And so is Peter, actually. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, we finished the operation. Oh, well done. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, the operation went extremely smoothly, actually. I was very pleased with it. Oh, great. Um, Oh, we will be pleased. Oh, well, thank you so much for that. And that's so kind the of operation is a complete success. I watch the footage of Peter proudly lifting his top to show off what he calls his new interface. Three plastic tubes of varying diameters running direct into his stomach. So we've got solids and fluids in, fluids out, solids out. It's as simple as that. I'm set for life. Peter can still eat and drink, if he chooses to, but will never need to visit a lavatory again. And Peter's immediately positive reaction to his new interface provides him with an important lesson for the future development of Peter 2.0. One of the most important shifts I now realise actually is a bit of a psychological one, because you have to put... At number one, things like self-esteem, uh, independence, a sense of style. I mean, it's, it's, it's really bizarre. Almost any disability equipment I get, it's as if it was put together by Wallace and Gromit. There's a big 
chunky bits and then bolts and, and none of it's colour coordinated. And it's as if, oh, now I'm a cripple. I don't need to worry about anything that has any sense of, of style to it. I, I should just be grateful that it works at all. I think actually that's completely the wrong way around. And what drives a lot of it is not just technology, but why you're using the technology. Why is it that I'm getting replumbed because actually I like the idea of being independent all day and I don't, call me old-fashioned, like the idea of being toileted. Two weeks after his op, Peter returns home. My golden ifofia, good grief. Just since I've been in hospital. For two weeks. It's huge. Amazing. It's a glorious summer day, and he powers his wheelchair straight onto the garden terrace. Darling, thank you. Tea? Yes. Iced tea. You're not allowed any alcohol. No, not while I'm on those antibiotics. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Ah, wonderful to be home. But Peter's journey is far from over in July 2018. In fact, it's only just beginning. In the next episode of this podcast, we'll follow him as he investigates the various other technological marvels out of which he might build Peter 2.0. But can he bring it all together faster than his body shuts down? I am probably as stressed as I have ever been in this project so far. And I can't look around and find out how do we do this? So I'm feeling the, the pressure that if this research is actually going to provide any value to people, we have to pull a number of rabbits out of the hat. And at the moment, I don't quite see how we're going to do it. We've got to, but I feel the pressure of complete ignorance as to how it's going to resolve. For more information on Peter's progress, visit scottmorganfoundation.org.uk. This podcast was written and presented by me, Chris Derlacher. The production team was Agatha Mastelesh and Helen McCauley-Stewart. Music composed by Sandy Nutkins. Produced by Bernard P.I. Champong. Executive producer is Pat Young. An unedited production for Cardiff Productions. This podcast was made possible with funding from The Welcome.